fit. All right, well, turn with me to John 16 this morning. And uh, this morning we come to our final lesson in the Upper Room Discourse. As you're turning there, I will outlines out. So like I said, this passage concludes the Upper Room Discourse we've been in since chapter 13. Uh, Next week, we'll start chapter 17, which is the high priestly prayer, which sort of concludes the upper room discourse. But this is the final section of Christ's teaching. Uh, His disciples is in our passage this morning. And it concludes with a high note of victory and triumph. That's a sharp contrast with the way the disciples have been feeling throughout this time in the upper room. They've been distressed and sorrowful at Christ's teaching. But that's because they do not know what Christ is about to accomplish in the cross and in the resurrection. But Jesus knows it. And so in our passage, Jesus is going to summarize what he's been teaching the disciples in the upper room. But he's going to do it from the vantage point of the resurrection. Once the resurrection happens, all the distress and the sorrow that the disciples have felt will dissolve away. And it will be changed to peace-filled, triumphant confidence. Now, if we had to choose sort of the main teaching of Christ in the upper room, the main thing that he's been trying to get across to his disciples in the upper room I think it would be his teaching that disciples are going to be left in the world as Christ's representative witnesses. We've seen that in just about every section in the upper room. Disciples, the apostles, and you and I have been left here to be Christ's representative witnesses. Christ is going to return to the Father and he's leaving his disciples Here And everything else that he's been teaching them has been to explain to them what this looks like and to comfort them with the promise that Christ will supply everything they need for this mission while they're here on earth. But this identity as Christ's representative witnesses will also mean that they and you and I will experience great hatred and persecution in this world. But all of this has not only produced sorrow in the hearts of the disciples, but also confusion. This is not the way it was supposed to be. It's not the way they expected it was going to be. It sounds like defeat. It doesn't sound like triumph. Messiah is going away. Disciples are going to be hated and persecuted. It sounds like a reason for distress, not for peace. But Christ is going to conclude the upper room by pointing the disciples forward to after the resurrection. After Christ's resurrection, and once the cross is rightly understood through the resurrection, then the disciples will be able to live as representatives, you and I, and be filled with peace and triumph in the midst of a world full of opposition. But what is it about the resurrection that changes it? What is it about the perspective of the resurrection that changes all of this. And that's what Jesus is going to teach us in our passage this morning. This final section is found in chapter 16, verses 23 to 33. And we started it last week. 
And in these verses, Jesus is zooming in to life after his resurrection. It's where we, each one of us live um, in the time after his resurrection. And in these verses, he gives two comforts which await all of his disciples following his resurrection. Last week, we looked at the first comfort. Jesus promises his disciples extraordinary post-resurrection gifts. Extraordinary post-resurrection gifts. And there were, there were two of these. What were they? Well, number one, there was the gift of complete understanding. After the resurrection, disciples will clearly understand all of Christ's teaching. They will understand how everything comes together, why he had to die, and all of the events will make place. No longer confusion. The gift of complete understanding. And then following the resurrection, there's also the gift of direct access to the Father in prayer. We have been left and commissioned in Christ's name. You bear Christ's name. And so when we pray, we pray in Christ's name. We said last week, that's not a magical formula. You just tack on your prayers to make the prayers all of a sudden work. It means that our prayers, we come to the Father as we are Christ's representatives left on earth. Our prayers, we come to the Father on the authority of Christ, for the purposes of the mission of Christ, and for the glory of Christ. And we're given the promise that all of those requests offered in that way will be answered. In other words, we have the Father standing behind us as we go behind enemy lines, backing us up, supporting us, supplying us with everything we need for this mission that we have been sent on to represent Christ in this world. So that was last week. But now we come to verses 29 to 33 in which Jesus gives us the second comfort which awaits his disciples following his resurrection, which will enable his disciples to live out this commission with great peace and confidence. Verses 29 to 33, Jesus promises his disciples world-conquering Post-resurrection peace. So let's look at these verses. Verses 29 to 33. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's how Christ ends the, the upper room. So let's look at this passage a bit bit closer. It begins with the disciples' faulty presumption that the hour of full understanding has dawned in verses 29 to 30. So remember back up in 25, verses 25 to 26, look there, Jesus says that the hour is coming when he will no longer speak in figurative speech and puzzling cryptic language, veiled sayings, but he'll speak openly about the Father and all the work that he's come to accomplish. 
And that hour clearly refers to the time after his resurrection. But since the disciples don't have a category for the cross and resurrection at this point, they don't understand what that hour refers to. They don't know what that means, when that's going to come, that hour of clear understanding. And and so in these verses, the disciples assume that that hour has already arrived. Look at verse 29 again. They say, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. They hear Jesus' statement back in verse 28, glance up there, about his coming from the Father and returning to the Father, and they think they, they get it. Right? They, they think, ah, now we understand the totality of what he's talking about. That hour must have already arrived. They understand and believe verse 28, and they think that's all there is to know. But the problem is that they still don't understand what has to take place in between these two comings, in between his coming to earth and his departure from the earth. They understand these two things, but their faith is incomplete. They don't know the cross and the resurrection must take place in between them. Yet nevertheless, their faith is real. They're not false disciples. It's true faith. It's real faith. It's just insufficient faith. Look at their confession in verse 30. So they're mistaken in verse 29. They think that hour has arrived because they understand verse 28. But, but, but now in verse 30, they make a confession. They say, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So they believe that he's come from God and they affirm that he knows all things. That is to say, Christ possesses complete mastery of all the things about God and God's ways and God's plans. And they understand that about about Christ. They believe that and they're right. So the disciples are right and their faith is real, but there is still much that still needs to be known and believed. They still lack complete understanding and faith in Christ as the crucified and risen Messiah and all that he would accomplish But that hour of full understanding has not come yet, but it will come. But until it comes, their faith is incomplete. And this lack of complete understanding will be the reason why disciples will be unable to endure the hour that's coming. It's why their faith must grow to a full-orbed faith in Christ as the crucified and risen Messiah, or else they will not be able to withstand their coming hour, chapter 15, verse 18, and following the persecutions that will begin coming once Christ leaves. They need to have this full orb to faith, but they don't have it yet. And this is why Jesus says what he says next in verses 31 to 33. Jesus' final encouragement for his disciples. He first corrects the disciples' misunderstanding. Look at verse 31. He answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. He asks, do you now believe? Implied answer, no, they don't fully believe as they ought. He's pointing out to them that their faith is still greatly lacking. And to prove this point, he points to how the disciples are going to respond to Christ's hour. 
Jesus says the hour comes and has come. In other words, the hour of his cross is so imminent, so upon them, that he can say it's, it's already come. In this hour, Christ is going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified. And because their faith does not yet include a crucified and a risen Messiah in the place of the cross, look at how they respond to his hour. Look what Jesus says. You will be scattered. You will leave me alone. You'll abandon me. That's just what he said to Peter back in chapter 13, verse 38. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Peter saying, Lord, I'll lay my life down for you. So you don't have to die. I'll lay my life down. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter would not lay down his life for Christ. He would deny Christ as a result of this hour. That's what all the disciples are going to do. In the hour of Christ's arrest and his cross, the hostility of the world is going to press down on the disciples so heavily that they will not be able to endure it but they will be scattered and abandon Christ. In other words, the disciples will be exposed that their faith is lacking in how they respond to Christ's hour. To them, it will look like defeat. It will look like the end of all their messianic hopes and expectations. It will look like the success of the world. And when viewed that way, it will mean the defeat of the disciples as well. And as a result, they'll scatter. Their leader's crucified. He's defeated And so they scatter from him in in fear. Or to say it another way, because they do not understand why Christ must die and rise again, therefore their present faith will not be able to withstand the coming test. Only faith in Christ as the risen and crucified Messiah through the cross can enable disciples to endure and withstand the pressures of the world. So Christ has to do this work alone. He must endure the cross and the hatred of the world alone. He must first accomplish the disciples' redemption, your redemption. He must first die and rise and through that provide the foundation of your hope. And when he does, then the disciples will believe rightly and then they will have faith, which can endure. So Christ will be left alone. But there's another sense in which he is not ultimately left alone. Look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 32. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. The Father is with Christ. Now there's certainly the sense in which the Father abandoned Christ, right? That's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us. He was abandoned by the Father in in judgment. So I don't think Jesus or John is denying that here. I think he's just speaking in a different sense here. The Father has not left Christ. He didn't leave Christ the whole time. While the disciples abandoned Christ out of fear of defeat, the Father is ever with Christ. He sent Christ for this purpose. He is pleased with Christ as Christ lays his life down. John 10, 17, the Father loves me because I laid my life down that I might take it up again. His hour and the abandonment of the disciples does not mean that God abandoned him. It doesn't mean he's a false Messiah. It means that the Father's most pleased and satisfied with the Son. This is God's purpose. So I think Jesus adds this little phrase here, this little sentence, 
to point to the fact that everything that is about to take place is under the control of God the Father. It doesn't mean he's rejected by the Father as a false Messiah. It means he's fulfilling the Father's very plans as the true Messiah. But the disciples' faith is still lacking. And it will not be the full-orbed faith that is needed until after the resurrection when Christ's cross becomes crystal clear what he did there and why it was important. It's why their faith will not be able to withstand the pressures. Christ must first die for them. They must first understand what he was accomplishing at the cross. And then with the resurrection, they will understand that his cross was not his defeat, but his greatest victory. And it was evidenced by the resurrection. And then with that kind of faith, they too will be able to follow in his footsteps and endure the same hate and hostility from the world. And this is what Jesus tells them in the final verse. So certain is his victory that before the events take place, he declares his post-resurrection victory. That's what we find in verse 33. Look at it with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In this verse, Jesus directs the disciples to his world-conquering work and the peace it secures for them. This verse is the main point that verses 29 to 32 have building up to. It's the main point of the entire upper room discourse. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that you may have peace. These things refers to the immediate context, but again, it refers also to the entire upper room. Everything he has said to them has for the, been for the purpose of their peace and joy. Throughout the upper room, he's been aiming to turn them from distress and despair to peace and confidence and joy. And as troubling as his words have been, his announcement that he's going away, his predictions of their abandoning him, his exposures of all their misunderstandings, his promises of great persecution, as troubling as all of that teaching has been, he's only spoken it to them for their ultimate peace and confidence. And he speaks these words now, which only make them feel troubled because they don't understand the cross and the resurrection. But the promise is that when they do, then they won't have fear and trouble, but overwhelming, enduring, ultimate peace. Their scattering from Christ will not be the end of the story. We're going to come to John 21, where they are restored. Peter's restored. Once they rightly understand the cross, then all of Christ's words to them including his promise of persecutions, will mean their peace. But where does that come from? Where does that kind of peace come from? Well, look what he says. In me, you may have peace. This peace is found in Christ, in me, in connection to me, because of your union with me. It doesn't come from this world. Does it come from what happens to you in this world? It comes from the fact that you are, by faith, connected to the risen Christ, such that all that belongs to him, all that he accomplished in his death and resurrection, belongs to you. 
And that means peace. Remember, Christ promised the same thing back in chapter 14, verse 27. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It is peace that endures even in the midst of all the suffering and persecutions and hate of this of this world. But what does peace mean? What do we mean by peace? It's not the kind that the world offers. That's what Jesus tells us. It doesn't mean simply an inner feeling of quiet. It doesn't simply mean everything in my life is easy and pleasant. All those are worldly definitions of peace. Superficial, fragile, not enduring. That's not the kind of peace that Christ offers. The peace that Christ offers you is a sense of confidence instead of fear. It is the experience of total well-being. The enjoyment of a restored relationship with God. That's the kind of peace. End time peace. The kind that you will experience in the new creation has already begun. Spiritually. In the restored relationship you have with God. Eternal life. And that kind of peace is rooted in your union with Christ. In me you have peace. And it endures despite the sorrows and sufferings you experience in this life, despite the persecutions. And that's what Jesus says next. Look back at verse 33. In me you will have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. So while you have peace in Christ at the same time, you will have tribulation in the world. The peace that Christ promises is a gift which is meant to sustain disciples in the midst of tribulation. It does not remove disciples from tribulation. You see that? The statement, you will have tribulation, summarizes what Christ promised back in chapter 15, verse 18. You look back there, we're not going to read it. Chapter 15, verse 18 through chapter 16, verse 4, all of the promises of the hate and persecution that will come on Christ's disciples. Disciples will be left in this world as Christ's witnesses, and because of that, they will have great tribulation in all kinds of forms and shapes and sizes, opposition, hate, persecution, slander, even death. Disciples are promised nothing else in this life except tribulations with peace. But where does that peace come from? How do we cultivate that kind of peace in our lives? How does this peace enable a disciple to faithfully endure tribulation in this world as a, as a witness of Christ? Well, the answer is found in the last line of this verse. Look at what Jesus says. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. <clears throat> Take heart, have courage, be bold, is the idea. So this is parallel with the promise of peace. I have spoken these things to you that you may have peace. Take heart. I give you peace, be bold. What is peace except a confident assurance and boldness in Christ and all that we have because of Christ and all that he accomplished? 
So why should they have peace? Look what Jesus says. Because I have overcome the world. Or literally, I have conquered the world. That's what that verb means. I've conquered the world. Christ's cross appeared to be his defeat. It appeared he was conquered by the world. The world and its hateful opposition to Christ culminated in the crucifixion. The world rejoiced at Christ's cross. Chapter 16, verse 20. Remember that? The world rejoiced. It looked like the world's victory. But Jesus here tells us that just the opposite happened. Jesus declares in verse 33 the post-resurrection perspective on what took place at the cross, which was confirmed by the resurrection. Christ was not conquered by the world at the cross. Neither is it true that he conquered the world despite the cross. But Jesus conquered the world primarily through the cross. He conquered the world by being conquered by the world at the cross. What does that mean? That he conquered the world. And how does that work? How does Christ conquer the world through the cross? Well, we could go to a number of places in John. I invite you to look at chapter 12, verse 31, where we get some insight into what Christ's cross accomplished. He tells us two things would happen at the cross. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So what took place at the cross, according to this verse? Jesus says two things. Number one, the world was judged. The world was exposed in the depths of its evil and hatred and depravity as it rejoiced in and crucified the Son of God. Far from Christ being judged by the world, what was actually happening was the tables were being turned and the sentence of God's judgment was being passed on the world. And the truth is that everyone today who remains in the same condition of unbelief is identified with this condemned and exposed world. Christ has ushered in the judgment. That's how he conquered the world, by bringing about decisive judgment on the world in the cross. But that's not the only thing. He also cast out the ruler of this world. Well, who's that? Satan. The world is under the influence and dominion of Satan, who's carrying out his purposes in the world. But at the cross, Satan was decisively dethroned. He was dethroned at the cross because he has lost any ability. And the world, being led by Satan, has lost any ability to hinder God's plans anymore and to eternally harm or destroy any of God's people. Satan, the accuser, has been thrown down. He no longer has ability to bring any charge against God's elect. And the world, the worst it can do to you is kill you and usher you in to eternal life. Listen to how D.A. Carson put it. 
Jesus has conquered the world in the same way that he has defeated the prince of this world. Jesus' point is that by his death, he has made the world's opposition pointless and beggarly. The decisive battle has been waged and won. The world continues its wretched attacks, but those who are in Christ share the victory he has won. They cannot be harmed by the world's evil, and they know who triumphs in the end. From this they take heart and begin to share his peace. You see, it's only when we understand that at the cross, Christ has dealt with our greatest need. He's atoned for every one of our sins. He's removed the impending judgment against us. It's when we understand that at the cross, Christ has defeated our greatest enemy, Satan, the accuser, your accuser. And when we understand that the world, as victorious as it still appears today, when we understand it's been decisively condemned, when we understand those things, then we may have boldness to follow Christ into this world to face the same hostility that he faced since there remains nothing which the world can ultimately do to us. With sins atoned for, and our way to the Father secured, and eternal life already begun, and judgment already behind us, we are enabled to have boldness in the face of any of the world's hate. And that's what Jesus promises. That's how he conquers the world, and how it gives disciples peace in this life. But what does that mean for us? Practically, what does that mean for us? It means that we who know and believe in Christ fully and rightly, who understand and depend on all that Christ accomplished for us, we have been given this kind of peace. It is yours as a gift. This is the confidence which we are to carry as we engage the world with the good news, that kind of confidence, that kind of peace. It should motivate us to be about the commission Christ has given us, being his representative witnesses, testifying to the truth of Christ, his kingship, his salvation, the impending judgment coming on the world, the eternal life that is only through him, testifying to the world of its sin and evil, which it must repent from. It motivates us. It gives us boldness to do that. And we so often, I so often, fail to do that because I fear the world. Fear. None of us face the threat of martyrdom like those in John's audience were probably facing. That's not the only way to experience opposition. These promises are not just for those threatened with death, but for all disciples who are tempted by the world's opposition to cease bearing witness to Christ. That opposition tempts us to fear, to keep our mouths silent, to not bear witness. And that's because we've forgotten Christ's triumph and the peace that that brings. It's a call for us to go forward in the confidence of what Christ has accomplished for us. And because of that, nothing can ultimately 
harm us. So we engage this world as it is an already defeated foe. And we engage this world as a world that we still have to battle. And we battle it by following in Christ's footsteps. Those who conquer are those who persevere in faith, who repent from their sins, who refuse to save their lives by allegiance to this world, but who rather are persecuted by this world because of their allegiance and witness to Christ. That's how you conquer. That's what the book of Revelation tells us over and over again. We conquer the world by persevering as Christ's disciples, by enduring in our allegiance to Christ and his word and his witness. It's how we conquer the world. And we do that fundamentally because we have confidence in Christ that he first conquered the world for us and the world can do nothing to us. And then we walk in Christ's footsteps. We conquer the world as we are conquered by the world. The paradigm of Christ's cross is the paradigm how we live our lives. Listen to Revelation 12, 11. They... Disciples, saints, believers in Jesus have conquered him, the dragon, Satan, the beast, the world, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. How do they conquer? By being conquered, by being slain, killed by the world ultimately. But they conquered by the blood of the Lamb because Christ first conquered, accomplished their redemption perfectly, fully, and then by persevering in their confession of Christ, their witness to Christ, even into the end. No matter what the world did to them, and through that they enter, we enter, into eternal resurrection life. So we conquer the world knowing it's already been conquered by Christ. It can do nothing to you. And we conquer the world as we walk in Christ's steps and are conquered by it because of our allegiance to Christ and enter into eternal life with Christ and the resurrection of the dead. So that's how Christ closes out the upper room. He's sending his apostles and he's sending you and me as his representative witnesses in the world and he's given us everything we need. Direct access to the Father, the provision of the Holy Spirit, Peace, joy, community of one another, to love. The promise that through your witness, many in the world will be brought out to salvation. Also the promise that in the midst of persecution and tribulations, you will, in Christ, conquer. So that's the upper room. Next week we will come to the high priestly prayer of Christ and... um, It is so rich, so packed. Um, So go forward this week in boldness. Live a faithful life. Be repenting from sin, trusting Christ, not loving the world. Bearing witness to him as you have opportunity in all kinds of ways with great boldness and confidence in Christ. So we have a few minutes before we wrap up. Any questions or comments from this morning's lesson or from anything we have Uh, talked about in, in the upper room.
<clears throat> Mark. Yeah. You mentioned um, peace, you know, what peace is. And the verse John 14, 27. <laughs> 50 years ago, that was the very first verse I ever hmm. memorized as a brand new believer wow. in Christ. And, you know, I was still too immature and thinking about peace as being that tranquil feeling. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I, as I began to grow and I realized, and this is another verse that is big, is Romans 5.1, Therefore, mm -hmm. having been justified by mm -hmm. faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus mm -hmm. Christ. And that peace that, you know, the tranquil feeling, when any, any other definitions is rooted and that we're not at war with God Amen. anymore, that we're at peace with God. And it just Amen. began to make so much sense to me. Amen. Praise the Lord. It all comes down to our union with Christ, right? It does. In Christ. Justification, peace with God. And then everything else flows from that. So, Amen. Michael, I was just thinking after the sermon this morning about Pastor Farrell. It's, it's just cool to see how the means by which Christ and Paul both Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. It's really good. Anything else? Questions, comments? All right. Let me pray. Gracious Father, where would we be without your word? Where would we be without Christ? Thank you for the redemption we have in him. Thank you. He is the glorious, triumphant, victorious Messiah. And in him we conquer in triumph. We enter into life now. We have eternal life now. Kingdom life, new creation life now. Peace with you, enjoyment of your fellowship and presence now. And nothing can take that away. And Lord, we only have the expectation that it's going to get better through death, through your return, through the kingdom, the new creation. And we look forward to that because we know you triumph and this world is already a defeated foe. Let us not fear the world. But go forth in boldness as your representative witnesses, how you've left us to image you now on the earth by obeying Christ, by loving one another, by testifying to his truth and the world's need to repent and look to him, knowing that through us the world will convict the world, the Spirit will convict the world and bring many to life. Help us be faithful. Thank you for your mercy. We confess our failure, my failure, so often to, to fear man, fear the world. Give us boldness. Use us in the days to come. May these truths sink down deep that we would be oak trees, not blown, but firm, strong, and used by you and for your kingdom and the glory of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.